There is a banner truth that we ought to be writing over our lives. It's nothing new. Uh, it's not a 21st century phenomena in Western civilization. In fact, this truth originates near the very beginning of human history. Uh, it comes into focus when we examine the first generations uh, of a covenant that God made with a people through whom would ultimately come Messiah. And that's this. Life is messy, but God is faithful. Since Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, a fallen people in a fallen world has been the example and the result. As part of his redemptive plan to bring fallen men and women back into a relationship with himself, God called a man out of paganism to leave his country, to leave his home, to leave his family, and to journey to a land that God promised to him and to his descendants forever. And God made a covenant with him, and God blessed Abraham, and Abraham, according to the scriptural text, believed the promise of God, and God credited to him as righteousness. God then reiterated this covenant with Abraham's son, Isaac. When Isaac was 60 years old, God blessed him and his wife with twin boys, boys fighting even on their way out of Rebekah's womb. We noted last week the dysfunction of sin, the consequence of sin. Both mom and dad fell into the trap of favoritism, which would eventually pit brother against brother, husband against wife, in the matter of conveying the firstborn blessing. And before the boys were ever born, Rebecca had been told that the older would serve the younger, contrary to cultural custom. But this was God's doing. It was his divine plan for his purposes. Griffith Thomas wrote, the order of nature is not necessarily the order of grace. Isaac disregards the covenant and the promise that God had given about the boys. And mom, looking out for her favorite, Jacob, conspires with him to deceive old dad. The end result is that Esau, the older brother, is seething. And he's filled with contempt for his brother, who had really stolen, in a sense, this birthright and now had stolen his blessing. The blessing that should have been his. And so he decides to wait until dad kicks the bucket and then he will get his revenge by doing in his brother. Jacob runs off to his ancestral home to Haran and he has an encounter with God near Bethel. We looked last week. This is the same place where Abraham, his grandfather, had had an encounter with God. And God confirmed at that time to Jacob that he was to be the recipient of the promise of the covenant made to Abraham. In Haran, he encounters a young cousin by the name of Rachel. And he falls madly in love with her. And after staying with Rachel's father for a month, the text tells us that there's a deal that's cut between these two guys. Take your Bible and go to the book of Genesis, first book in the Bible, to Genesis chapter 29, and just stay in Genesis. We'll be there all morning. Genesis chapter 29. I want to start reading at verse 15. 
Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. What is about to unfold in Jacob's messy life is what Kent Hughes called soap opera ugly. Let's look at the story from Genesis chapter 29. Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you've done to me? Did I not serve you, with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other one also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed his week. week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. The deceiver is out deceived by his uncle who declares that this is just not the way that things were done there, the firstborn before the secondborn. Do you see just a little bit of irony here to Jacob? The principle of Galatians chapter 6 is true of Jacob. Do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also receive. First, there's deception, and now, folks, it's payback. But then there comes the consolation prize. If he would work another seven years, then he could have Rachel as well, the one that he really wanted as his wife. And Jacob is now the husband of two, one whom he loves and the other who hates his sister. And now... The fun begins, and I say that with all sarcasm intended. God, who is seen as the one responsible for life, a biblical concept through and through, closes Rachel's womb. But Leah conceives, and we have the beginning of a running battle of sibling rivalry between these sisters. Two desperate women, one longing for love, Leah, the other, Rachel, longing for children. And so let's just map it out. This is the way that it looks like on these two teams, Leah's team of boys and Rachel's team of boys. Leah, boom, 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 four kids, four boys, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah. Rachel doesn't want to be outdone, so she gives her maid, Billa, to Jacob, and we have the next two boys, Dan and Naphtali. But then Leah gets in the race again, 
And she gives her maid Zilpah to Jacob, and you have Gad and Asher. And then God enables Leah to conceive, and she has two more boys, Issachar and Zebulun. And finally, you have by Rachel the last two boys, Joseph and Benjamin. If you're old enough, do you remember the dueling banjos? This is the dueling wives. And it runs this dysfunction all through the family. Jacob spends a total of 20 years essentially working for his uncle before he's able to break free. And there's this interesting animal husbandry thing if you'll read uh, the text and, you know, about spotted lambs and, and, and striped goats and, and all of that going on. The end result is that Jacob's flocks are growing exponentially. And then he tells his wives that God has told him to take his family and to return to his homeland. Look in Genesis chapter 31, starting at verse 20. Chapter 31, verse 20. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. So Jacob sneaks out of Dodge so that he doesn't have to face Laban. But Laban finds out and he pursues Jacob. And there are these accusations that are just flying back and forth between Laban and Jacob. It includes the theft of, Jacob, of Laban's household idols. And uh, Jacob, not knowing that his beloved Rachel had stolen them, declares to Laban that whoever had done that surely should die. Well, we know Rachel had hidden them away. And they're not discovered. And four chapters later, she's dead in childbirth with Benjamin. Well, Laban and Jacob reach a meeting of the minds, and they agree to separate. I can't resist having you look at the way that they part ways, because they make a covenant with each other. And this is what they swear to each other. Verse 49 of chapter 31. The Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. This is sometimes used in church's benedictions. May the Lord watch between thee and me when apart. That is, they don't understand what Laban and Jacob are really saying to each other. What they mean is, may the Lord watch between you and me because we are both deceivers and we will do each other in unless God watches over us. That's what they mean. See, Jacob is still leading a deceiving faith. He's still living out this faith that deceives. He, he sets out to return to Canaan knowing that he will probably have to face his estranged brother who the last he knew wanted to kill him. And so Jacob's journey as he now goes back to his homeland really is a journey toward authentic faith. And as he approaches Canaan, he sends messengers on ahead to meet Esau. They come back and they tell Jacob that Esau's brother is coming to meet him with 400 men. This scares Jacob spitless. And it drives Jacob to prayer. Look at chapter 32, starting at verse 9. 
Jacob said, O Lord, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. And in this first prayer that we have recorded in the Bible, Jacob offers an honest appraisal of his unworthiness, a dependence upon God's promise, and a very specific request that God not allow Esau to kill him and his family. So the next morning, Jacob selects hundreds of head of livestock to be sent on ahead to Esau. For restitution or for appeasement? I don't know. But that night he moves his family across from the camp and he begins to, to, to encounter this amazing thing early in the night. A man comes to him and begins to wrestle with him. In a sense, this is a picture of Jacob's entire messy life. He wrestled with his brother, he wrestled with his father, then with his father-in-law, and now he will wrestle with God. The prophet Hosea says this about this experience. He says, in the womb, he that is Jacob took his brother by the heel and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. Who is this man who wrestled with Jacob? Well, it probably was the pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of the Lord, the one who had appeared to Abraham to restate the promise of a son to come from him and from Sarah. And as they wrestle, Jacob asks him, what is your name? What is your name? Now, I think God knew Jacob's name. What was he after? I think he wants Jacob to own up to his name. I am Jacob. I am the heel grabber, the supplanter, the usurper, the deceiver. You think when we, when we understand the message of the gospel, that Christ came to die for sinners, God requires that we own up to our name, sinner. That's what I think he's doing with Jacob. That's why we have to admit the reason for our separation from him, that our sin has brought us under his judgment. This is why reconciliation in the Bible is always required on our part. Never in Scripture does it say that God is reconciled to us. He doesn't have to be reconciled to us. It's not his fault. It's ours. And so they wrestle all night. And just before daybreak, the angel touches Jacob's hip and he dislocates it. I think it was just to demonstrate the power and to show Jacob that at any time, with a touch of his finger, he could disable Jacob. But I have to ask myself, why all night? Why, why does this, I mean, you know, I've watched wrestling matches. They don't go on that long. It goes all night. 
I mean, didn't God have the ability to end the match quickly? Yes, I think he did. But I think there's another principle at work here, and that's this. There was value in the struggle. There was value in the struggle. Do you remember the story in the New Testament of Jesus' first post-resurrection appearance to the disciples? They're gathered in the upper room, and Jesus just sort of materialized out of nowhere, And one of the original 12 was missing, Thomas. He missed muster. Where was he? I think he's wandering out in the hills somewhere, trying to make sense of everything that had happened the previous days. This is a guy who's really struggling to understand. I think he's trying to figure out where does he go from here. Now, eight days later, the text tells us that Jesus appeared again to the disciples. This time, Thomas was present. Did you hear me? Eight days later. When Thomas wasn't there, Jesus didn't run out to find him and say, Oh, Thomas, Thomas, I'm sorry you weren't here. My bad. He didn't do that. There was value in the struggle that God let Thomas go through. Have there been times in your life where you have been in the struggle? Maybe wondering where God was? Was he around at all? Did he care? Maybe some of you are there today in the circumstances of your life. But the point is, he is around. I love the story that Leonard Sweet tells. He says one tribe of Native Americans had a unique practice for training young braves. On the night of a boy's 13th birthday, he was placed in a dense forest to spend the entire night alone. Until then, he'd never been away from the security of his family and tribe. But on this night, he was blindfolded and taken miles away. And when he took off the blindfold, he was in the middle of thick woods by himself all night long. Every time a twig snapped, he probably visualized a wild animal ready to pounce. Every time an animal growled, he imagined a wolf leaping out of the darkness. Every time the wind blew, he wondered what more sinister sound it masked. No doubt, it was a terrifying night for many. After what seemed like an eternity, the first rays of sunlight entered the interior of the forest. And looking around, the boy saw flowers, trees, the outline of the path. And then to his utter astonishment, he saw the figure of a man standing just a few feet away, armed with a bow and arrow. It was the boy's father. He had been there all night long. God sees, and he cares. But there's value in the struggle. Notice, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's enjoyable. I'm just saying that there's benefit in the struggle. God does not delight in wounding his children, in seeing his children suffer, but he does delight in the spiritual benefit that comes from the struggle. He delights in the eventual outcome. 
This wrestling match, it, it was for Jacob's benefit. It's part of his pilgrimage on the way to authentic faith. And Jacob clings to the angel. If you can just picture this a little bit in your mind, like a boxer beaten and battered, wrapping his arms around his opponent uh, to prevent himself from falling to the canvas for the count of ten. And Jacob implores the angel for a blessing. Two things result from this match. The first thing is a new name. Jacob is renamed. He's no longer to consider himself deceiver. He is now Israel. God rules or God prevails. There's a new name. Second, there's a new crippling. And Jacob will carry with himself his entire life a physical reminder of this spiritual journey of having met God, of coming face to face with the one that will be his constant companion for the remainder of his days. Well, the story goes on. We don't have time to explore the reconciliation that occurs between Jacob and Esau. Go back this week, pull out your Bible, read the account. But I do want you to see something else. I want you to see the humanness of Jacob. Esau asked Jacob to journey with him to his land, to Edom. But Jacob tells another fib. He says that his family is tired and they're frail to the point of death. They need to rest. But later, brother, we'll come down and visit you in your home. Both are really untrue. There's another thing. Jacob goes and settles in Sukkoth. First of all, I, I, don't, I don't think that's where God told him to go. I'm drawing some circumstantial evidence out of the text there. But he goes to Sukkoth, and then he builds a house, and he settles in. Later, he goes to Shechem. Again, I don't think that's where he's supposed to end up. I, I think God expected him to return to Bethel, where he'd had his dream, and where he'd made his vow that he would return there and would set up an altar this is also the place, remember, Bethel, where Abraham had met with God. Halfway obedience. There's still a lot of Jacob in Israel. Ian de Good writes, what was Jacob doing, settling down at Shechem and raising an altar when he should have been continuing on to Bethel to raise the altar there, where he had first had the dream? Did Jacob think that Shechem was a better site for trade and for his flocks? Perhaps he thought it didn't matter. After all, Bethel was now a mere 20 miles or so away. He could go there whenever it suited him once he got settled. Why be so precise in these things? Shechem or Bethel, it's really all the same, isn't it? Indeed, it is not. Whatever his motivation, Jacob's compromise and his failure to follow through with complete obedience to what he had vowed would cost him and his family dearly. Read chapter 34. Almost obedience is never enough. Being in the right ballpark may be sufficient when placing a, watching a baseball game, but it's not nearly enough when it comes to obeying God. Nothing short of full obedience is required. That's Jacob. But isn't it also the danger that we face as well? Half obedience? Lord, I did a lot of what you asked me to do. Isn't close enough good enough? But you see, half obedience is really disobedience. And we need to learn the lesson that Jacob learned. 
Well, after leaving Haran, Jacob spends a decade doing what he wants to do. Finally, he obeys God's voice, the beginning of chapter 35, and he returns to Bethel. Jacob does something else that's a part of the legacy of his authentic faith. Look over Genesis chapter 35, starting at verse 2. Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments and then let us arise and go to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I've gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Jacob takes a stand with his family and he removes the idols from their midst. They are to follow God with whole hearts, with full allegiance, single allegiance. And in response to what he does, God comes to him again and he reiterates this promise. Look in chapter 35, beginning with 9. God appeared to Jacob again when he came to Padam Haram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. And then God went up from him in the place where he'd spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he'd spoken with him, a pillar of stone. And he poured out a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. Let me, let me just wrap up with some conclusions and maybe some applications from Jacob's life to this point. Number one is that God's plans and purposes are sure and will stand forever. His sovereign will cannot be undone. And we are either cooperating with or fighting against his will. And God asks us like he asked Jacob to trust him, to wait on him for the purpose to be accomplished in our lives. Now, this doesn't mean that we're passive in faith. This doesn't mean wait, meaning do nothing. I think Eugene Peterson puts his finger on it when he writes, waiting does not mean doing nothing. It is not fatalistic resignation. It means going about our assigned tasks, confident that God will provide the meaning and the conclusions. It is not compelled to work away at keeping up appearances with a bogus spirituality. It is the opposite of desperate and panicky manipulations of scurrying and worrying. That had been Jacob, hadn't it? Manipulate everything that he could. Second thing is God's grace is the foundation of our salvation, our very lives. When we look at Jacob's life, we see Jacob had nothing to offer to God. God took the initiative. God, based upon his promises, sought out Jacob and made this covenant with him. He gave to him what he called in the video shattering grace. Likewise, we have nothing to offer God. His sovereign grace is not conditional on the things that we do, some inherent worth that compels God to work in us. But this is the way of authentic faith. It's by God's wonderful grace, guaranteed by his faithfulness. And third, God's grace calls for a response on our part. Let me ask you, where are you headed this morning? 
Are you on a journey towards God or away from God? Are you living a deceived faith, a scheming faith, a half-obedient faith? Or are you responding with an authentic faith? And though flawed by sin, you're responding to the grace of God, you're seeking to trust him, to live by faith in light of his purpose and plans for you. In 1740, Charles Wesley penned the words to a hymn that speaks to our need, I think, even today. It goes like this. There for me the Savior stands, shows his wounds and spreads his hands. God is love. I know. I feel. Jesus weeps and loves me still. I have long withstood his grace, long provoked him to his faith. This is Jacob, isn't it? Would not hearken to his calls, grieved him by a thousand falls. Now incline me to repent, let me now my sins lament. Now my foul revolt deplore, weep, believe, and sin no more. Do you need to do business with God today? Do you need to respond to his gracious call to trust him? To live an authentic life? To put away idols? To live an obedient life? That's what he calls us to. Would you remind yourself regularly of this? Life is messy. God is faithful. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you that in the midst of our messy lives, you are always there. You see everything about us. You've seen already the beginning to the end of our lives on this earth. And you love us. And you sent your son to be a savior for us. God, may we begin to trust you more and more as we understand how much you love us, how much you care for us. And even at those times where we cannot understand why in our lives, would we, would we yet be willing to trust you because you know the ultimate why. So may we walk by faith this week in a way that pleases you, in Jesus' name I pray, amen.